hey, I'm sorry this episode is late. I had a death in the family, and so I spent quite a bit of time with my father. But this episode is pretty long, and hopefully that will make up for my absence over the last few days. Thanks for your patience. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 215, King Burgred and the End of the Danish Sausage Fest. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Diane, Jonathan, and Bonnie for signing up already. It's 873, and so far, Halfdan has extracted three Dane gelds from King Burgred in exchange for promising not to occupy Mercia. And of course, he's gone on to occupy Mercia, most recently in a town called Torxi. He also put down a rebellion in Jorvik and reclaimed the city. He pushed King Rixiga of Northumbria beyond the Tyne, effectively demoting him to King Rixiga of Bernicia. And now, he was marching, or potentially rowing, towards Repton, which was also in Mercia. Burgred could not catch a break with this guy. And Repton was an important location for the Mercians. It was situated strategically on the River Trent, and it was central to Mercian political power, as it held symbolic importance as the site of the Royal Mausoleum of St. Wyston's Church. While Repton might not have been an economic center for Mercia the way London was, and it wasn't as economically dominant as its neighbor to the north, Snottingham, it was certainly a political center of power for the Mercian royal family. Repton was where King Athelbald and King Wiglaf of Mercia were buried, as well as Prince Wigstan. You'll remember him as the guy who was stabbed to death when he refused to let his rival, Bjortfrith, marry his mum. In fact, the dominance of the Whig dynasty in this mausoleum is the source for many scholars' theory that the Whig dynasty flowed from King Athelbald, since he was also there. And why not? Given his predilection for one-night stands with nuns, it's entirely likely that he was related to a whole bunch of nobles by the end of his reign, including possibly the Whig dynasty. So on a political level, Repton had significant meanings to the Mercians, which could explain why the great heathen army moved west through Mercia. They passed right by Snottingham, and they kept going, with their eye firmly fixed upon the home base for a surprisingly large number of royal cults. Now, based on this tactic, scholars think that Halfdan must have known that Repton was the Mercian equivalent of West Saxon Wimborne. Repton was a symbol of the Mercian good old days, those times when Mercia was still dominant in the south. And while it might not have been quite as potent an image as, for example, the eagle was for the Roman legions, Repton still was basically the physical location of Mercian morale. It probably was also a reminder of the sins of the Bee dynasty, since Prince Wigstan was murdered by a scion of the Bee dynasty, Bjortfrith. And that's pretty significant because another presumed member of the murderous B dynasty was currently sitting on the throne. King Burgred was part of the same dynasty as Bjortfrith. At least we think he was. 
So by moving on to Repton, the Danes weren't just assaulting the memories of Mercia's glorious past. They were also reminding them of Burgred's terrible family legacy. Everything about this move suggests that Halfdan was setting his sights on destabilizing and weakening Burgred's position in Mercian politics. And perhaps that was the plan all along. The success of Danegelds, and now this strike at the heart of the power structure of Mercia, certainly had all the hallmarks of a political, rather than an economic or military, attack. And don't forget that despite being linked through marriage, Mercia and Wessex couldn't be more different. Despite the sons of Athelwolf dropping like flies, Wessex was able to weather the numerous succession crises, as well as the repeated Danish invasions, and they had come out of it on the other side stable and intact, and that was largely thanks to the fact that the royal dynasty of Wessex was pretty much the only game in town. And when you hold a monopoly... Instability and poor decisions don't really endanger you as much because it isn't like there's any other alternative. It's why there are still so many Comcast customers. But Mercia had numerous royal dynasties, just like Northumbria. And that meant that with every mistake that King Burgred made, and with every strain that was placed upon his kingdom, either through invasion or through the payment of a Danegeld, there would be nobles who'd be asking themselves whether it was time for a regime change. So even though Abel's estimates that Halfdan's force might have only numbered at about a thousand warriors, the fact that the Danes were making a surprise attack on Repton would have been a huge problem for King Burgred. And it looks like the Danes were able to occupy the region without much of a fight, since we don't read of any major battles that occurred when they arrived. There's a weird part of this story, though. Halfdan and his army didn't occupy the town itself. Instead, they took over the mausoleum. And that was really bad news for Burgred. Not just for the political reasons we just spoke of, but also for military ones. Halfdan had once again chosen the most defensible ground. As soon as he and his army moved in, they went to work constructing a semicircle of defenses along the River Trent. They dug a ditch along the outside edge, likely constructed ramparts along the top of an earthen embankment, and the final insult was to use St. Wyston's church as their gatehouse. This would allow his army to move in and out of his encampment with relative ease, but it would also create a narrow, sturdy, defensible bottleneck if the Mercians should try and assault their camp. Furthermore, there was the issue of optics. The mausoleum itself was a major symbol of mercy and royal power. It was also a symbol of the power of God. And here it was, being used by these oath-breaking pagans to fortify their encampment. Salting that wound, the army now also held about one and a half hectares of Mercian lands right at the heart of the kingdom. And what could the Mercians do? East Anglia was conquered. Deira was conquered, Wessex was licking its wounds and was honestly probably unlikely to come to her aid after being abandoned in 871. The Welsh had endured generations of war with the Mercians and were about as hostile to the Mercians as the Danes were, if not more so. And as for Bernicia, it was simply too far away. And besides, it was also behind Danish lines, so it would be unable to easily link up with the Mercian forces. Mercia was alone. 
And ever since Snottingham, Burgred's warriors have been showing that they were pretty reluctant to fight. So what chances did he have to convince him to charge this embankment or take on the extreme risk of crossing the River Trent? There were no easy answers here. And Burgred did what he often seems to have done. He sat on his hands and he let the Danes keep Repton. And so we're told that Halfdan and his forces spent the winter of 873 and early 874 in Repton. And according to Abel's, a number of powerful Mercian nobles began to defect from Burgred's side. Perhaps they saw the writing on the wall, or maybe they just had hit their limit and refused to be taxed any further by this king. We don't know, but Burgred's support was evaporating right before his eyes. Meanwhile, Halfdan was preparing to spend yet another winter in enemy territory. Given how rough his campaign of Wessex had gone, and how Jorvik had rebelled when they spent too long away from the kingdom, you have to admit, it was a bold move on his part. He was basically gambling everything on the chance that Burgred would blink first. And if Burgred didn't, then this wouldn't be a bold move. It would be a stupid move. But this was Burgred, and he didn't just blink. He cringed. Seeing his support dwindling and realizing that the Danes could carry out strikes upon Tamworth, the heart of Mercia, well, it wasn't very long before King Burgred and Queen Athelswitha fled the kingdom. Interestingly, rather than seeking refuge with his brother-in-law, King Alfred, it seems that Burgred was officially done with politics, war, and men named Sven. And frankly, it was unclear if he had any friends left in Mercia, let alone Britain. So he threw in the towel and left his secular life in favor of a spiritual one. This was basically the medieval political equivalent of saying that you're going to go spend more time with your family. He decided he would no longer be a king. Burgred and his wife would now be pilgrims. And they made their way to Rome. And they did get there. But they would never return to Britain again. Meanwhile, in his encampment, King Halfdan suddenly found himself with a brand new kingdom and he needed to figure out what he's going to do with it. So he decided to give Mercia to a noble by the name of Cholwulf. He would reign over Mercia as a puppet king, and he took the name King Cholwulf II. In exchange for this title, Cholwulf provided the Danes with hostages to ensure his loyalty, and he swore that his forces were ready to serve the Danes should they ever have the need. Now, naturally, this move wasn't particularly appreciated by their neighbors to the south, the West Saxons. And the reasons for this are pretty obvious. Burgred was family, bad family, but family nonetheless. And besides, things between the Danes and the West Saxons weren't exactly friendly. So a Danish collaborator right on their border probably didn't sit well with them. Consequently... It wasn't long after that that the West Saxon records started talking about Cholwulf as, quote, a foolish king's thane, end quote. Basically, they were pointing out that he wasn't of noble blood, and he was also stupid to boot. But the truth is that we don't know the situation Cholwulf was in and what sort of pressures he was under. Much of the Anglo-Saxon nobility was in a zero-sum game, 
given how tight the resources were, especially after the repeated Danegelds, as well as the immense downward pressure on status that their wealth concentration had created, well, it isn't surprising that some of the nobles looked to better their situation by allying with the Danes, rather than dying in service to nobles who, even if they were successful, would continue to oppress them in order to maintain that system that was elevating them and keeping everybody else down. So maybe King Cholwulf II wasn't all that foolish, and he was looking to make the best out of a bad situation. Furthermore, after taking the crown, we see records of King Cholwulf II issuing charters independent of any Danish witnesses or co-signatories. And some of his witnesses were nobles who had formerly served Burgred. So it looks like he not only had the support of some of the Mercian nobility, he also appears to have been exercising power at least semi-independently. This gives me the sense that the accusation of foolish King's Thane probably has more to do with West Saxon politics and the disapproval of his alliance with the Danes and the ouster of Burgred, rather than any actual reality regarding his background and intelligence. I mean, based on his name alone, he sounds like he could be from the C dynasty, which would mean that he'd be royalty if that was the case. But regardless, the West Saxons were pissed. And make no mistake about it, despite the recent Danegeld that Alfred had paid, Wessex was still very politically active in the South. And following Burgred's expulsion, Alfred began to exert West Saxon influence into parts of Mercia, including London. The fact of the matter is, that Halfdan wasn't the only power in Eastern Britain. But let's go back to that Danish encampment at Repton. The story that I just told you came from the written record. It's a simple story of a Mercian who was dominated and ousted by a Danish king, and then a puppet state was established in the former territory, setting the stage, of course, for future conflicts between the Danes and Wessex. It's simple. But at Repton, we have a lot more than just the written record. We have a bunch of bodies. Archaeological digs revealed that the nearby Repton Chapel was emptied out, leveled, and put to use as a mass grave by the Danes. They found the remains of at least 264 people buried there, and the burials were able to be dated during the period that the Danes occupied this area. So who were these people, and why were they buried this way altogether? The first hint we get at what was going on in Repton was the condition of the bodies. Archaeologists were struck by the apparent lack of fatal battle wounds. So these people don't appear to have been the casualties of a battle or a raid or some other form of violent killing. So how did they die? Well, most scholars agree that given the condition of the bodies and how they were buried without any sign of external violence or anything like that, suggests that they were overcome by disease. So that suggests that even if the Danes weren't fighting with the Mercians, these campaigns were taking a toll on the great heathen army. And keep in mind that this wasn't the days of Rome where armies would consist of many legions. Losing 264 people would have been quite a blow to Halfdan. And those were just the ones who died. If the Repton body pit is a sign of a plague, then imagine how many of Halfdan's men were struck ill, but survived. Imagine what that would have been like for the great army as they spent their fourth winter in the field. Imagine the smell of it. 
the sheer misery of being trapped in a cramped location yet again, likely in shelters that were damp and drafty. And now, they were being struck down by an illness that they couldn't even explain. How could they? It would be almost a thousand years before germs would be discovered. So when you imagine Halfdan waiting for Burgred to blink, add in the disease that was infesting his encampment, and the desperation that must have hung in the air, even though they were on the verge of victory. Again, I think that Halfdan must have been at least a little bit worried about a mutiny. These conditions were dire. And we learned something else when the archaeologists took a closer look at these bodies. They determined that about 20% of the bodies found at the Repton mass grave were female. Let me say that again. Based upon the Viking burials at Repton, we're seeing the presence of a significant number of women with the Danes. A full 20% were women. That's two for every 10. And they were being buried right along with the Danes. And upon hearing that, you might be thinking how they might be the family of the great army who accompanied the warriors on their time abroad. After all, Halfdan was certainly known by this point for having long campaigns. So the family might have wanted to come along. You might also be thinking about how Scandinavian women had higher status than Anglo-Saxon women, and they might have had skills and abilities that would make them very useful on a campaign. In fact, we do read later accounts from the 890s that mention families being brought with them, and even Danish children being captured in London by the Anglo-Saxons. So perhaps the great army brought their families with them in this early campaign. It wouldn't be the first time that something like this happened in Britain. You might remember how Boudicca's great army included their family members, who gathered like a large tailgate party to watch her fight against Gover Suetonius and his Romans. That might have been the case here as well. But archaeologists don't think so. Because based upon bone size and density comparisons, scholars believe that the female burials at Repton were more likely to be Anglo-Saxon than Scandinavian. That isn't to say that they were definitely Anglo-Saxon women, but if they were Scandinavians, then their bones look remarkably Anglo-Saxon. And if these remains were Anglo-Saxon women, what on earth were they doing in a Danish camp? Well, there are a few seemingly obvious options. Some of them might have been camp followers who moved with the army in hopes of profit. This is something we're going to get into later, but we have Anglo-Saxon records of English men complaining that English women were scampering off with Danish men. And it's not hard to imagine why. The Danes were definitely more cleanly than the English. And when some tall, nice-smelling Scandinavian came along... Unferth might not have been able to compete. The second option for these burials is that this was a religious site on the grounds of an old nunnery. So we can't discount the possibility that these were simply previously buried nuns that were incorporated into the mass burial, like pious chocolate chips into a Viking cookie mix. Another possibility is more sad. These women might have been seized. The Danes like the Anglo-Saxons, were slavers. It's not something we talk about a lot, but slaves were something that both cultures traded in, and these women may have been nabbed and brought along with the army as slaves. Whatever the case, we have a Danish burial at Repton that's 20% female. 
which means that we're seeing evidence that these camps weren't the all-male affair that pop culture might lead you to believe. And here's where this story gets a bit weirder. There's another burial site just a little bit down the way, at a place called Heathwood Barrows. Now, Heathwood Barrows is a cemetery to the east of Repton, and it contains 59 Viking burials. What makes it very special is that it's the only Scandinavian cremation site that we found in Britain so far. On that fact alone, it's fascinating. It's a complete break from the other Viking burial sites. And thanks to osteological evidence, here too we find the bodies of women. That means that based on the analysis of their bones, scholars believe that their bodies were female. And unlike the burial at Repton, in Heathwood Barrows, the women were buried with weaponry. In fact, of the three swords that were recovered from this site, all three were found in graves determined to contain female remains. Now, the burial at Heathwood offers a variety of tantalizing details. But it's also something that we must be very cautious with, because the dating of these finds is a bit sketchy. The safest dating that we have of Heathwood Barrows is that it was sometime between 873 and 917. And that's a large period of time. Now, some scholars argue that based upon recent analyses, the dating should be placed somewhere between 873 and 878, and that this burial should be tied to the great heathen army. But that's a point of contention, like most things. So, until and unless the site is able to be more firmly dated, we can't be sure that this could actually be tied to the great army. But there are scholars who are making the tentative connection between Heathwood Barrows, the Repton Mass Burial, and the Danish occupation by Halfdan. So that's roughly what we found in Repton and the surrounding area. But here's where a major controversy within it lies. And it's a controversy that you're actually quite likely to have heard about, and I can say that confidently because I got a ton of emails from you guys sending me links. It was one of those rare controversies that actually spilled out into the public sphere. Unfortunately, the facts didn't accompany it, and neither did the real fight. It was all framed as, were there women Vikingers? And just how many women Vikingers were there? But that wasn't the real fight. The real fight was whether or not there were Scandinavian women who accompanied the great heathen army. And if so, how many? And then the sub-question to that is what percentage of the Danish migrants before the year 900 were women? So let's talk about that real fight, because the real fight is actually a lot of fun. So, it's well known among scholars that sexing remains, which would be an excellent name for a goth band, but actually means determining the sex of a body. Well, sexing remains is something that we've only just started to get good at. And because of that, that's led scholars to argue that we need to go back to a lot of archaeological sites and resex remains. And resexing remains would be that band's reunion tour. However, making the case for this is actually pretty hard, because resources are limited, so you have to make a good argument. And even if you do make a good argument, if no one cares, it still doesn't go forth. But unfortunately, the Norse graves are right in the target hairs for the need for resexing because they were found during the early period of archaeology, where we really weren't good at determining a body's sex, meaning that we might have gotten it all wrong. And that's a real problem, and it can have huge ramifications in how we see the past, 
because scholars like Hadley use that old data, which might be bad or at least filled with errors, and they use it to support their argument that most Scandinavians in Britain in the pre-900 period were men. So functionally, what they've done with this data is create an image of the great heathen army being a big male mob. And that's led other historians to then theorize about the behaviors within that mob and characterize it as a single sex group that were in Britain ostensibly to seize treasure, acquire lands, and then find mates. So the image that we're given is sort of like academia meets a Super Bowl commercial. But what if that's all wrong? What if it wasn't all male and they weren't here looking for mates at all? What if some of them were accompanied? And what if intermarriage wasn't as common in that first generation and it didn't happen on a large scale until later on? There are all kinds of possibilities as soon as our single-sex Danish love boat has holes poked into it. And there were plenty of holes. One of the biggest holes is how many of those burials were sexed through grave goods meaning that we assumed we knew the biological sex of the body based upon the stuff that they were buried with. And the burial goods method is notoriously problematic because burial goods might have very little, if anything, to do with a body's sex. I mean, think about it. Sexing via burial goods requires that the culture connects sex with the material possessions that they place in a grave. And it also requires that the scholar who's looking at those goods has a perfect understanding of that relationship between material possessions and sex. And frankly, this entire podcast has been an explanation of exactly why we will never really pull that off. In fact, even Hadley acknowledges that female burials might have been less elaborate and therefore more difficult to identify by burial goods meaning that many of the so-called male burials that were just assumed to be low status might have easily been female. Consequently, we're now in a phase where scholars are taking a fresh look at some sites that we thought we knew, and we're now using osteological methods to resex those remains, and that might paint an entirely different picture. So that's a major part of what this controversy is, is making the case that we have to get back there and resex these remains. But that isn't to say that the osteological method is perfect. One big flaw is the fact that bones develop and change based on use, as well as hormones and a variety of other factors. Not only that, but bodies vary, and not everyone has a stereotypically gendered bone structure. Men like myself, who have a more slender frame due to activity patterns, genetics, diet, and whatever else that's out there, might be sexed as women. Alternatively, the cranium of an older woman might be sexed as a man because of hormonal changes that occur after the female body goes through menopause. You also get into issues of age and all sorts of other things that could easily lead to misidentification. Furthermore, the best way to identify female remains is via the pelvis, but that doesn't always survive. And that also creates issue for osteological analysis. So even our best tools are imperfect. But overall, osteological methods are a vastly superior way to sex a body, and scholars generally believe that it provides a much more accurate analysis. The trouble, though, is that many digs from previous decades were sexed with the less reliable burial goods method. And these errors become incredibly important when you consider the stories that we build around these finds, 
and how we interpret history. For example, within the last couple decades, Margeson, Patterson, and Kershaw have identified substantial numbers of Norse jewelry that's typically associated with women, and they've been dated to the pre-900 period. They've also found female dress items. Now, that's not something that you'd expect from a male-only great heathen army. And initially, it caused some degree of confusion. So, that's the first scholarly fight. Did we correctly sex these bodies? And if we didn't, can we move resources around to resex them? And based upon what we find, what will that tell us about the past? But already, the traditional story of a male-dominated Danish army that settled and took Anglo-Saxon wives is being heavily debated as a result of just these few finds. For example, many scholars also are now pointing out that settlements under Danish rule experienced name changes, often with Old Norse elements being added, such as adding B at the end of a town's name. And they point to these names as evidence that Old Norse might have become the dominant language being spoken in these towns. Now, MacLeod and others argue that such a linguistic shift would indicate that Old Norse was being spoken at home as well as in the public. And that, they argue, suggests that Scandinavian women were present in Danish-occupied territories. So these people would have been speaking Old Norse among themselves with the Anglo-Saxons being put into the position of having to catch up and learn the new language. Furthermore, even the written record actually confirms the presence of Scandinavian women and children. For example, the account of the Great Army in the 890s details the presence of Norse women and children, with some being captured by Wessex. Armed with the written evidence, as well as the jewelry, dress, and possible place names, Many scholars, including Jesh and Holman, argue that there is an undocumented migration that took place following the initial Great Heathen Army, and that this additional migration contained substantial numbers of women, which they believe could account for the changing place names and linguistics, as suddenly there would be a full Scandinavian society rather than simply an occupying male-dominated warrior force that was supplied by the Great Army. Now, critics of this theory point out that more male Norse names survive from this period than female Norse names. And they argue that this means that more men than women came over during the migrations. They also point out that the written record of Danish women and children is in the 890s, which was 20 to 30 years after the Great Heathen Army. That's a whole generation later. And while MacLeod argues that women and children could have been present in the prior Great Army period of 865 to 878, that's not an uncontroversial position. And all the written record indicates is that by the 890s, some Danish women and children were captured by Wessex. So this is the question that we face during this period with contemporary scholarship. How many women were part of the Danish migration? And when were women part of the Danish migration? Based on the answers, we might need to rewrite large portions of our texts. But at the very least, we probably should osteologically resex the Danish burials. So, that's the fight. What was the ratio? How do we fund resexing to better work it out? And what exactly was going on back then? However, if you were on the internet in 2014, you might have gotten the sense of a completely different fight being waged. 
And that's thanks in large part to some writers making incredibly provocative and eye-catching headlines, proclaiming proof of S.H.I.E.L.D. maidens. In fact, they didn't just claim that S.H.I.E.L.D. maidens were proven. They said that a new study revealed that half of all Vikings were women. Half. That's huge. And as far as I can tell, all of this was started by someone misreading a 2011 article in the Daily Mail. And frankly, the Daily Mail is always a bad start. But the Daily Mail was talking about a study by Dr. McLeod that argued that some Danish women were part of the pre-Danelaw migrations. That was it. Not exactly groundbreaking, right? But three years later, in 2014, those claims had grown. And now it wasn't that some Danish women were part of the pre-Danelaw migrations. Instead, we had headlines stating that half of all Vikings were women. And if you were one of these people who read that and just about fell out of your chair, you weren't alone. Pretty much all of the armchair history nerds on the internet saw these articles. The thing went viral pretty much overnight. And for good reason. If it was true, virtually everything about Scandinavian history and post-793 British history would need to be edited and altered. Half of all Vikings were women? That's a massive discovery. And predictably, many of the internet articles talking about it were light on facts. But typically, the first thing that these writers would point to to support their headlines was the mass burial at Repton. And I'm inclined to forgive them for mixing up 20% of 50%. Math is hard. And typically, if you get a degree in journalism or English, it's because you hate math. It's why I went into law instead of the sciences. I hate math too. But... Regardless of my allergic reaction to percentages, even I can see that 20% is significantly less than half. It's not even a quarter. So that's problem number one. Adding to that issue is the fact that, as you've already learned in this episode, these female burials at Repton appear to have been Anglo-Saxons, not Danes. And while Danes were pirates and their ships don't appear to have been culturally monolithic, it's striking that the uniformity of bone analysis points to the Anglo-Saxons and not away from them. So, at Repton, these women were probably Anglo-Saxon, and consequently, it's doubtful that they would have been shield maidens, as there wasn't really a tradition of shield maidens in Mercia. Not even Athelflaed Lady of Mercia was a shield maiden. Now, some articles do point to Heathwood Barrow. And at that site, there do appear to have been women buried in a Danish style and buried along with weapons. That's striking. However, that's not the only thing that's striking. This is a unique burial. There's no other Norse cremation burials found in Britain. It's also remarkably hard to date, with most people placing it within a 50-year window which could put it far outside of the era of the Great Army and deeply within the era of the Dane Law. And finally, on top of everything else, it's a small sample size. So given the strangeness of the style and condition, the dodgy dating, and the relative smallness, we can't reliably say that it's representative of how the Great Army behaved in Britain. Frankly, Heathwood Barrows isn't a good place to find answers is a place to find questions. Now, after that, virtually everyone writing a Half of Vikings Were Women article would turn to Dr. McLeod. Well, actually, 
most of them would turn to someone else's summary of Dr. McLeod's article. I mean, when I tried to piece this phenomenon back together, it appears that everyone was either summarizing each other or copying quotes from each other. And that made me wonder what the hell was in this thing in the first place. So I did the classic BHP thing. I bought the journal containing Dr. McLeod's article, and I read it. And this is going to shock you, but the only outfit that got even close to what McLeod was writing about was that first article in 2011 by the Daily Mail. Yeah, out of all the articles that were floating around during the Half of All Vikings Were Women fury of 2014, only the 2011 entry by the Daily Mail got close to an accurate depiction of it. And that puts me in the awkward position of saying, well done, Daily Mail. And the misreading of McLeod's article by most of these dodgy sources in 2014 is really a shame because it's an interesting read, even if it doesn't say quite what some people thought it did. So let's get into what it does and doesn't say, since busting myths is also what we do here. And if you're curious, you can read it for yourself. It's in volume 19, issue 3 of the Journal of Early Medieval Europe. So to start with, McLeod didn't say that possibly more than half of Danish migrants were women. In fact, he was very careful to point out that the evidence doesn't offer numbers, and merely suggests that the ratio of female migrants might have been between a third and a half of all Danish migrants during the whole of the pre-900 period. That's a very different statement, and even if he's correct in his assessment, that still doesn't mean that a third to a half of the Danes at Repton were female. Nor does it mean that a third to a half of the Great Army was female. The period between the first landing of the Great Army and the end of the 9th century is substantial. It's about a 35-year span, and it has a major period of migration taking place about 20 years after Repton. And as I try and remind you as often as possible, 20 years in the past was just as long as 20 years are today. The truth is that McLeod was making a case that previous analyses of Viking migration tend to ignore the pre-Dane law period, and that methods of determining sex by looking at grave goods and other circumstantial evidence during this period can be faulty, and that the archaeological record should be re-evaluated using modern osteological techniques, because our early assumption that the Danish invasions were pretty much a male-only affair is probably incorrect and needs to be fixed. This argument is the same reason why he also highlights the diversity of Norse burial techniques, because he's pointing out how that also tends to throw the old burial goods method for a loop. He's essentially just arguing for a reanalysis of the pre-Danelaw period, and saying that the 35 or so years during that era might have included more women than we previously assumed. That's it. But saying that isn't nearly as eye-catching as a headline stating that half of all Vikings were women. Consequently, I find myself being intrigued by McLeod's position while also resenting the way it's portrayed on the internet. But here's the important part. Even if he's right, even if we've incorrectly sexed some burials, and I suspect we have, I still take issue with the scope of his analysis. Essentially, he's looking at archaeological evidence from scarcely more than a handful of graves. And sure, what he's found is quite interesting, but it is a really small sample size. And then he stretches even farther, and he seeks documentary support for his theories. Now, I understand why he needed to do this. 
history tends to focus heavily on the written record, and purely archaeological evidence might not get the same degree of attention. It's starting to change, but change comes slowly, so I understand why he looked to the written record for support. The trouble, though, is that because the records from this period are so sparse, he had to look about 20 years into the future in order to find any mention of Danish women and children. And then, after he found that, he doubled back and posited that because Danish women and children were present in the 890s, they might have been with the Great Army in the 870s. That's a huge leap, because those were two distinct and separate events. Even if women comprised a massive chunk of the migratory population in the 890s, that doesn't mean that they comprised an equally large chunk of the Great Heathen Army in the 870s. This would be like looking at the Doomsday Book, which was completed in 1086, and assuming that it was an accurate representation of exactly what England looked like in 1066 before William the Conqueror showed up, and making grand headlines stating, England has always been pretty Frenchy. Just look at all these French names in the Doomsday Book. Two different periods separated by 20 years. And besides, it's just as likely, if not more so, that there was an unreported migration following the initial campaign, just as Jesh and Holman theorize. And ultimately, the place where he hangs his hat on is Repton. But he's only looked at a handful of bodies out of 264, and drawing such a rough percentage from such a small sample over such a large period of time is just too much of a stretch for me. In fact, it's even too much of a stretch for McLeod, because he says towards the end of his article that because his sample is so small, it's unwise to, quote, presume that there were as many or almost as many female Norse settlers as men. The results at least suggest that there were a greater number of female immigrants than has usually been acknowledged, end quote. That's what McLeod says. He's basically saying, it looks like there were more women. We need to take a closer look at this. But the worst part of all of this is that by focusing on and generally misunderstanding that aspect of McLeod's article, the journalists seem to have completely missed the real jaw-dropper. At least the real jaw-dropper for me. Through osteological techniques, just from his very small sample at Repton, he's found a likely woman who's been incorrectly categorized as a man. He also suggested that based upon the jewelry that she was buried with and an analysis of isotopes, which I'll be honest is way above my pay grade, though members may be pleased to hear that Z promises to explain it in a future shop talk on the science of history. But by analyzing the isotopes, McLeod determined that she was from southeastern Sweden. So despite earlier studies, even at Repton, we have at least one Scandinavian woman who was buried with jewelry during the time that Halfdan was occupying the site, which McLeod says suggests she accompanied the Great Army. And I think you might be right on that. And while the bodies identified as female were all determined through bone comparisons to have been likely Anglo-Saxon, it does raise the question of how many female Danes got mischaracterized as male simply because they were tall, at least tall by English standards. That's interesting, right? I mean, for me, that about knocked me out of my seat. We might have clear evidence of a Danish woman at Repton with half Dan's great army. If that's correct, that's the amazing part of this article. And it's based on actual evidence. 
though we don't know a hell of a lot about who she was and what she did. The truth is that when talking about Scandinavian women in his paper, McLeod often uses the terms wives and widows, and I think that's a mistake. Based upon his very narrow sample, which was selected on the basis that the bodies could be osteologically and chemically sexed, and also regionalized, he's provided us a potential view into possible sex ratios, which is amazing. He has not, however, provided a view into the role that women played, and to presume that the women present in the 870s were wives because the Norse women in the records from the 890s were referred to as wives is a leap, and not one that I feel comfortable taking with them. These women might have been wives, but they also could have been slaves, warriors, servants, workers, or any number of other roles. Let's be clear, though. This is also the truth for any individual male Viking remains we find. Bones typically don't record a person's profession within their culture. And we don't know what many of the roles were available in a Danish raiding party, or in the Great Heathen Army. Furthermore, McLeod's analysis, even if correct, doesn't provide proof that this woman was a shield maiden. What it does prove is that some Scandinavian women accompanied the Great Heathen Army, in some or possibly many capacities and one was high status enough to own a ring that we could source. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that there definitely weren't shield maidens serving on these ships. Nor does it mean that there definitely weren't any Scandinavian women in Halfdan's camp. Frankly, some shield maidens aren't out of the realm of possibility. And right now, there are a few dudes in their 50s and 60s writing to tell me about how women are too weak to be warriors. In the past, when I've made passing commentary on this subject, I've had a cadre of older dudes imploring me to be scientific, and this is a direct quote, stop making women more than they are. But here's the thing, I'm not making women anything, I'm reporting what the record shows. We have one likely Danish woman that popped up in McLeod's small analysis at Repton, and we have multiple women buried with weapons at Heathwood Barrows. Women do show up at these burials, and that's just a small survey by one academic. That's a fraction of the sites out there, and we're already finding more women than we used to think were there. And frankly, science doesn't foreclose shield maidens on a physical level, because human beings don't have a lot of sexual dimorphism. We'll get more into this in a future shop talk, but basically, the average size and weight of human males and human females overlaps heavily. If you take a random man and a random woman, you can't say with certainty that the man will outperform the woman unless we're talking about very specific tasks that you probably can't do in public. Now granted, culture and activity definitely can influence ability, but as for raw physical potential, there's a ridiculous amount of overlap between men and women. It's just how humans have developed. And besides, we're dealing with shield walls here. The primary power that's being thrown at a shield wall isn't in your upper body. It's in your legs. And if we're going to look at averages and mistake them for a faded ability, then we should remember that on average, women perform very well when it comes to lower body strength. Like I said, we'll talk about all the ins and outs of sexual dimorphism, but on a scientific level, it simply isn't groundbreaking or controversial to say that some women would have certainly had the raw physical ability to serve on a shield wall. But as it stands, 
I think the only thing we can say with certainty here is that we don't know if women played a military role in the great heathen army. And even if they did, women don't appear to have had military leadership roles. Otherwise, the scribes and clergy probably would have lost their minds and we would have never heard the end of it. But that being said, we probably do need to revise the traditional image of the Great Heathen Army being an all-male tour group that conquered and then went about looking for Anglo-Saxon mates. At the very least, it appears that there were Scandinavian women who either came with or came in a subsequent migration following the initial conquest. And if true, that raises new and interesting possibilities, as pointed out by MacLeod and others. For example, if Norse men were bringing wives with them, then there might have been less intermarriage than we first assumed. Furthermore, this was a period of intense war, and in such a situation, some warriors would die. So what would a war-widowed Norse woman do? Would she seek another Norse partner? Or maybe an Anglo-Saxon? And what was happening at home? Based upon Wessex capturing Norse women and children in the 890s, it's possible that the practice of leaving women and children behind in Norse-controlled regions might have been practiced in the decades earlier as well. And if that's the case, it raises new questions about the full impact of the failed Northumbrian rebellion which placed Rick Siga in charge. I mean, think about it. Did Halfdan and his men have family in Jorvik when it fell? What impact would that have had upon them? And it also raises questions about the Danegelds and the submission of Burgred and others. Because were there hostages exchanged during these things? They were done that way before and after this era. So, at the end of the day, there's no clear answer as to the sex ratio of Norse migrants, despite what you might have read. Further, there's no clear indication of gender roles, and thus no clear indication of whether or not these women were warriors, also despite what you might have read. Sex, gender, and the roles associated don't always flow together, not even in the past. But regardless, there's increasing evidence that our notions of the Great Danish Sausage Fest needs to be revised, if not outright erased. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And hey, you should join us on Twitter. Z and I both keep an eye on that account, and we interact quite a lot with people on there. And it's fun. It's a lot more like hanging out with us than you might think. So please do go check that out. And thanks for your patience, everybody. And of course, thanks for listening. I am a baby.